Hello everyone, I'm Dana Stewart-Bullock and this is Transformational Therapeutics. In today's podcast, I will be talking about perception. I will, of course, first define it and then talk about how to see perception in a new way, a way that originates in the definition of perception itself. So welcome. Perception comes from the Latin for seize, apprehend, take. So it is a noun of action. That's a really important thing to understand. This act of taking possession is done with our senses. We think of it as primarily vision, but we also perceive with our other senses, taste, smell, touch, and hearing. It is my contention that perception and how we perceive is paramount and central to any interaction and to this philosophy. And so changing one's perception of language itself opens up many avenues to other perceptions and ways of being in the world. It is truly an avenue of self-empowerment. To help me today, my dear friend Rebecca Doring, a healer in her own right, has joined me for this topic. So welcome. Hi, Dana. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. I'm excited about today's topic. This is a big one. It is a big one. Perception. I, it sounds like this topic is really crucial to the model. Am I correct in saying Well, that? it's crucial to the model and it's crucial to us as beings because it has such an impact on how we are in the world. Mm, how so? Well, how we perceive something, someone, a situation, a landscape, then determines how we respond to it. And so I believe that perception is the basis the fundamental foundation for most interactions. How does someone's perception affect an interaction? Perceptions themselves in the brain, the perceptual areas of the brain, are tightly associated with the emotional areas. And our perceptions are developed early on in life. Because they're tightly associated with our emotions, are influenced by them. And the key point is to understand that and to know that you have the ability to separate out your perceptions from your emotions or, or your feeling state. Can we dissect that a little bit? Because I feel like that is really rich. So can we start with explaining more about how our perceptions are developed young? Okay, so we perceive with all of our senses, not just vision. And so as information comes into our different sensory systems, taste, smell, hearing, touch, those perceptions, those feeling states get wired into our brains very young, in utero and on. And our brain is forming at the same time. And so we're not conscious of what is being wired into it. And so if there are problems, or not if, there are, each of our families, our cultures, we all have different ways of seeing things that are influenced by our families, our cultures, our own feelings, our own physiology. It becomes a feedback loop, and the wiring of our perceptual state starts very young. And because it's a noun of action, because perceive means to grab onto and to hold onto, it's actually true that much of what we perceive in the world is actually already in our brains and we don't realize it. 
So much of perception is unconscious. We think of it as seeing a painting or seeing a landscape or seeing another person, but it has an emotional aspect to it that we're unaware of. And for instance, if you take somebody who's had a stroke and their left visual field has been affected by a stroke, so they don't see what's on the left side of their bodies if that area of the brain on the right is affected. So they will eat only on the right side of their plate. If you're standing on their left side, they won't perceive you. It's really a right-sided ability to see and an inability to see on the left side. And it turns out that they've done studies, and what they found is that if they place something left that the person cannot see and ask them to reach for it, the person will say, I can't, I can't see it, I can't see it. And the scientist will say, just try, just try it. And they're able to grab something in their left visual field that they cannot see because there's a separate track in our brain that almost sees without vision, knows exactly where the object is and is able to pick it up. So that track in our brain fires much more quickly than the higher centers that interpret what we see. So they found that those tracks automatically function even if you've got a problem with the visual field in terms of vision. You still have a lower form of perception that is viable. Does this part of the brain develop at an earlier age? Yes, it's, a, it's the most primitive part of our brain. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the um, survival areas of our brain. And is the most primitive part developed first? Yes. So at a very young age, our perception is being developed. Absolutely. And so when you say that we perceive with the five senses and different experiences are being wired as our brain is being developed, is it almost like a, an impression of different experiences of when we're young is molded into our brain? Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. So that years later, if that similar impression comes up, we just automatically perceive it as the way it was when we were and, and where because it comes from a primitive part of the brain and later on there the, the brain is hierarchical and there are more advanced layers that develop as we grow so this is in a primitive part of the brain and what happens is it doesn't depend on vision but it's tightly associated with the emotional centers so for instance if you're walking on a trail in the woods and you see a snake and you have an immediate reaction of jumping back and then you do what we call a double take and look again, and it turns out the snake is really a branch. It's those lower perceptual areas in your brain that have caused you to jump back. These are survival mechanisms of perception. Yeah, I literally did this just the other day when I was on the trail, and my body jumped before I even saw it. I feel like my eyes weren't even aware of it before I actually jumped up off the ground, and then I noticed it was a root. Well, that's exactly what happens in the study with people with strokes. It's in a laboratory, but it's the same mechanism in sort of the opposite. You did it from fear and they decided or they believed they couldn't touch what was there. But there's an unconscious perceptual piece in our brain that functions all the time that we're not aware of and drives a lot of our behavior. It, it drove you to jump. Right. So are you saying that similar experiences could happen in everyday interactions? Like everyday communication? Yes, with because I, yes, because when you've had social reactions as a young child, whatever charge they have will be associated in your brain. 
And if you have a similar reaction as an adult, because the circumstances mimic the childhood ones, you will have the physiological reaction as an adult, and it's not appropriate in the adult milieu. Mm. Just like it wasn't appropriate for you to jump because there was a stick on the ground or a root. Right. But because of my perception that it was a potential danger or whatever, that made it, my brain believed that it was an appropriate reaction in that moment. And your brain's job is to keep you alive. Right. And to protect you. So in a conversation with a person, if they say something that would get that part of my brain to jump on board, my brain believes it's an appropriate reaction to have a full body experience. But in actuality, it might just be my perception. Right. And that full body experience may very well drive how you react to that person without you even realizing it, because you're having a physiological reaction that's associated with you in an emotional state that you're now associating with the person you're interacting with. And that physiological state is oftentimes from early on in childhood, that person may bring up for you uh, almost a physiological memory that you're not aware of from childhood that then drives how you interact with that person. And we see it all the time. We do. And people, we, we tend to then blame that person, that that person made us feel a certain way. But that person is not the original person who made us feel that way because we're now older and more mature and able to choose how we feel. And we didn't even give that person a chance to notice intellectually how we would like to respond. Our, the primal part of our brain just responded for us first. Exactly. And it's a good word using primal because it is so primary. It's so about survival. But in our civilized, quote unquote, society, that it's not appropriate. If you're if you're out in the bush, it's a very good skill to have. And sometimes if you're walking down a dark street, it's a good skill to have. So it's really about being able to perceive the context and understanding the impact of perception from early on on us. And then to start to tease out and use higher brain centers. If I'm in a discussion with somebody and I'm having a a physiological, emotional reaction to really ask myself, what's really happening here? Is this just my perception or is that person threatening me? Hmm. Right. Usually the person is not threatening you. And if they are, then it's appropriate to have a physiological reaction. Sure. But if they're not, and you, and you look at it rationally, then this is from a long time ago. This is how you're perceiving the situation, but it's not appropriate for the present time. So in a conversation, if you notice, as if I'm, my whole body is jumping up away from the root, thinking it's a snake, then I can look and say, wait a second, is this actually a snake here or is this a root? In a conversation with someone or groups of people, you can monitor your body reaction because your body is a really primitive mirror for what's happening. And if you're not aware of it, it will drive how you interact with another being. How do you become aware of it? Well, one of the ways is to perceive, to look around you and ask yourself, am I really in danger? Is this, or is it just that I, I don't like this person? I mean, to really own your own perception of the situation and of the other person. We can agree to disagree because you have your perceptions and I have my perceptions. We can still meet on another ground, on another level. And knowing that it's just my perception, we could then talk about our perceptions 
instead of getting into things that we actually disconnect us and, and into arguments and battles and that sort of thing. If you are having a discussion with someone and you are not connecting because each person was in their own perceptions, then you said one way you could meet is by discussing. Yes, I found that if I simply say, this is how I see it, mm. this is how I see it, whether it's political or whatever, it's like, this is how I see it. And you can say, that's how you see it. And that's okay. Right. And it takes the emotion out of it. Right. If I say, this is how I see it, and I'm angry and I'm pissed and it, those are my feelings. You can't make me feel that way. I have a choice in how I feel. Yeah, and it sounds that sounds like it could be an interesting conversation to even ask someone how they see it. Rather than getting defensive, you could say, well, this is how I see it. How do you see it? And it almost opens an opportunity for there to be two perceptions. It absolutely does. And it opens an opportunity to really widen the, the playing field and to get to know somebody from a very different level. Right. Changes everything. Totally. And that's why I think it's so vital. It takes the emotional charge out of it. And you may still have an emotional charge, but that's your emotional charge. You can take that away with you and figure that out in another time. But that should not be projected onto the person with whom you're interacting. By broadening the conversation that way, if you didn't, then you could just walk away the same, associating this negative physiological state with this person, and then perhaps put judgment on the person that that person is this way and made me feel this way. But if you then say, hey, this is how I see it. How do you see it? It's almost like you're acknowledging to yourself that I have a choice in how I feel, and now I can get to know this person. And once they explain their story... You might discover that it's completely different than what you assumed because you were projecting your own history on them. And also when you acknowledge that this is how you perceive, it separates you from how they perceive. And so it gives them the opportunity to see how they're perceiving. And then it takes the conversation to another level where you can talk about your perceptions of the subject, not necessarily just the subject. And I find this is particularly true in politics today. I mean, everywhere, people are just attacking each other, but they're not using the phrase that this is how I perceive it. So they're not owning the emotion behind it, and they're just spewing their emotions at each other, and nothing gets resolved. And looking at it through this lens, everyone could be in completely different perceptions when they're trying to communicate. And so, of course, they're going nowhere. Exactly. And how could you? Because exactly. you're completely it, shielded by your own perception and their, by theirs. Well, you're immersed in your own perception because that's how the brain works. And so you're seeing through eyes that are influenced by old perceptions and emotions. So if you just know that, for me, it, give, it gives me a form of power that is so profound in an interaction. Mm-hmm. It gives me more choice. I can choose to project onto the other person or I can choose to look at my own perceptions and acknowledge that this is a perception. I've seen couples do it. I've seen people do it. It's just fascinating. If you stand back and watch two people getting into an argument, you can see that this one has perceived what the other one has said from their own perceptual place. But that's not necessarily what the other one has said. Mm. So the point is in real time to own that I am perceiving you this way or I'm perceiving the subject this way and go beyond that. Right. 
Can you explain a little bit more about the connection between perception and the physiological state? I'm going to wrap it in with language also. So this is a story from me treating a young child. And this young child was in a classroom, was diagnosed on the spectrum, and was being asked to place pegs in holes, but in different sizes and shapes. Partway in, this child reached for a pen and started flying the pen like an airplane. And that is a classic behavior for somebody who's diagnosed on the spectrum. I know this about perception. And in my field, people would tend to try to divert or change that child's behavior. But I saw it as language, and I saw it as a language of stress rather than a language of autism or Asperger's. And the reason I saw it as a language of stress is that it was a repetitive behavior. It was inappropriate in the moment. I saw it as a cry for help. This is too stressful. I can't put the pegs in the hole, or else it's too boring. I wasn't sure which it was, but I saw it as language. And knowing the physiology of the brain, oxytocin is a relaxing hormone that is released in response to physical touch. So I watched this scene, and this child is flying a pen around as though it's an airplane. And the child is supposed to be putting pegs in holes. I took the child and wrapped my arms around the child to anchor and give input so that oxytocin, a calming hormone, would be released. And after a few, probably only seconds, maybe less than a minute, the child sort of threw me off and went back to putting pegs in holes. So the perception of this little child as having a stress response rather than having an Asperger's or autistic response changed the outcome totally. I didn't really know what I was doing. I just risked it. And so she went back to doing the pegs in the holes and then a few minutes later picked up a pen and started flying it again. And I did the same move and I could feel when the stress had been released. The oxytocin obviously was on board, calmed down, let her go. She went back to pegs and holes. The third time, before she picked up the pen to fly it like an airplane, she said to someone else in the room, watch this and sort of looked sidelong at me behind her and then started flying it. I then perceived that as a form of communication or language asking for a hug. And so I then hugged her and she calmed down and then was able to go back to the task. So that's how I combine perception and language and another being. This isn't two people of equal age or skill talking to each other, but it's, it's an example that I can use to describe how I see perception. Mm. If I had seen it only as an autistic behavior, there's something called ABA, which is a behavioral technique. It teaches the brain to change its behavior in reaction to an outside force. I want the brain to own its own abilities. And so that's why, to me, it made more sense to have oxytocin released by that brain to have this child be able to calm herself rather than have an external force come in and suppress what was obviously a stress reaction. Hmm. I want that child to gain the skill inside her own being of reducing a stress reaction by feeling the changes in her physiology, not by having it imposed from the outside. 
I'm using the actual sense of touch as a way of showing that child's physiology that it can relax in response to that kind of stress. So were you, in essence, reconditioning that child's perception? Totally. And not necessarily the visual perceptual piece. That I think it was a primarily touch piece. So, so the hormones that are released, the oxytocin, for instance, then changes the, the primitive areas of the brain in real time. Mm-hmm. So that child experiences a change in physiology internally. Whereas if I were doing a, a behavioral technique, it would be applied from the outside. It would be changing focus for the child, that sort of thing. But I don't believe that that changes their inner mechanism for regulation. I was interested in, because she was young, in her physiology, learning what I would call the language of stress relief that's internal. Learning how to relieve your own stress internally, because that's a skill you'll use for your lifetime. Right. And changing the perception of the stress itself, too. That if I experience stress, I will be okay. Exactly. Whereas a previous perception might have been the complete opposite. If I feel stress, there's going to be more stress coming. And that's how I saw the behavioral interventions as more stressful. You may change the behavior, but you're not changing the skill in the tissues, in the brain tissues of that being or in the touch tissues of that being. Right. My goal was to allow the inherent systems of wellness to take over Mm. and to help develop them. Right. Because if you're always doing it from the outside, it's the same as having a conversation with someone when you're in a different perception. You're not changing the original perception. And if you see it as language and see it as a cry for help, almost as though I I can't regulate myself, help me, help me. Mm -hmm. I'm flying this plane. Some aspect of her knew that that was an inappropriate behavior. I just assumed. And so to then respond to that on a primitive level, it's a primitive request. I responded to it on a primitive level by hugging. Talking would not have changed that brain, I don't believe. I'm just thinking of the first story you shared. We're talking about observing our own perceptions so that we can actually have a real conversation with someone like recognizing that if I'm stuck in my perception and you're stuck in yours, we, we really can't meet. And then in the second story, you're talking about as a therapist working on changing the perception of a child to empower them and develop an internal skill. Is there a way? Well, I was talking about that, but I was also talking about changing my perception. Mm. That was the most important thing because I perceived this girl as telling me she was stressed out. And then knowing the brain science and knowing her age and her primitive state, I used those tools to influence the brain. If I had intervened with a behavioral technique, I don't know that it would have changed her perception of herself or her reaction. Right. So in you changing your perception, it allowed you to help Help her her change hers. And that perception on her part is the perception of stress and it's the feeling of stress. And so I used a feeling intervention, which is touch. And I used it knowing that oxytocin is a hormone released and and provides a counter to stress. Mm -hmm. That's just my understanding of how the brain works. But it's also just common sense. If you get out of the perception that this child is autistic and weird and just see it as a communication 
then it takes you down a whole nother route. So by seeing everything as language, you open up a lot more opportunity to change your perception. To change my perception and to change the other being's perception also. Mm. I think it's 70% of our spoken language is the tone with which we speak. And that's what people respond to unconsciously, automatically. So one of the ways of changing perception as, as an adult in an interaction is monitoring my own tone when I'm talking to someone because they may be hearing a tone that I'm not aware of, I'm not perceptually aware of, or not reacting to their tone. It's a moving target of, of differentiating between the actual words and looking at the language of the body, the posture, the tone of the voice. It's, it's an ongoing dynamic shifting that happens in conversation back and forth. It's seeing the bigger picture and seeing your own bigger picture. The whole point with this perceptual piece is to get to the point where you are not in your emotions, that you have emotions, but you're not in them. And in an interaction with someone, if I own my own perception, separate from my emotions, that this is how I perceive this subject, but that's separate from how I feel about it, and then you have the same reaction, I can then imagine seeing through your eyes. And that brings us to another whole level of communication and communion, really. Exactly. How did you word it? Not being in? Your emotions. Having emotions, but not being in them. Mm, by recognizing that it could be your perception. It, it is, it your, is perception. your perception. Yeah. That this is your perception at work. Your perceptions are ancient in your life. They came very early. You're safe. You can look around, um, unless you aren't. But if you're in a safe situation in a conversation with somebody... You may not feel safe, but if you look at the objective reality, you are safe. So that way you can separate your emotions and not be in them and try to change how you see this situation and the other person. Because they may not be attacking you. Your perceptions may be off. Right. They may just be a root in the ground and you're thinking they're a snake. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So how, how would I start working with this concept how would you recommend beginning well again the beginning is just understanding that this is how the brain works that's that's a given and that our perceptions are inculcated in us very early the ones that are attached to emotion i've said in one of the other podcasts that development of the observer is the first act of empowerment so if you can observe yourself or the other person and just stop for a nanosecond and say wait a minute Am I in my emotions? Is this reality? Am I being threatened? Is it really that threatening if somebody's talking to you about something they believe in? So odd to me. And we're in this day and age so in our emotions. And emotions are just feeling states. They're not necessarily reality. Right. Well, actually, look at your body and see the reaction you have. And then go from there to see how that's influencing your perception of the other person. That's how I would do it. Please. And you can have a physiological reaction in your body and still be present with the other person on another level. So true. You don't have to spew your emotions all over them. Perhaps even more so. Yeah. 
then you're not just caught up in the storm of your emotion and not seeing the other person whatsoever. Instead, you're just acknowledging that storm and then you can actually see the person in front of you. And I think also just verbally saying, this is how I see it. I mean, if you just took the two people and one said, this is how I see it, and the other one said, this is how I see it, it's like, oh, okay. Right. Yeah, keep the dialogue the same. Just add that one statement one to statement. it. One statement. And it changes everything. Everything. You cannot connect if you're at war, if you're, if you're spewing at each other. You can connect even if you come from two different realities. Mm -hmm. You could even connect by saying, oh, we're in two different realities. Isn't that interesting? Right. That opens up all kinds of doors. But if I'm accusing you and you're accusing me, there's no room for expansion. It's interesting because I, I do hear about how families get almost afraid of having these types of discussions because they think that if this person believes so differently than I do, then I have to write out my family member and I can't speak to them ever again. And I don't want to lose my brother or whoever. But by changing this, you could create a connection. Right. And that's an either or way of seeing the world. Mm. That's a duality. Whereas if you acknowledge that you have two different ways of seeing, then you, you just open up all kinds of possibilities. Mm.